Good afternoon uh, and welcome to uh, this Latrobe Asia event, Climate Change Resilience in Asia. Uh, my name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University here in Melbourne. Uh, I would like to start the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional custodians uh, upon which Latrobe University, Bandura and City Campus sits. So I would like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend my respect to Indigenous Australians who might be present with us this evening. So I'm really pleased to be able to host this uh, important discussion on a vital question of how climate change is going to affect the Asian region uh, in the decades to come. With its densely populated cities, low-lying islands, melting glaciers, we know that Asia is a region vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Uh, extreme heat, weather disasters, rising sea levels, uh, all of this could lead to disasters, including mass flooding, landslides, droughts, uh, and these disasters we know uh, can uh, and will affect millions of people. So uh, I've got sort of two aims, if you like, for today's discussion. The first is to really unpack those effects. Uh, we are focused on Asia, but we also, I think, need to recognise that Asia is not the only region that is affected by climate change uh, and that Asia is also uh, a geographically uh, and politically uh, diverse region. So, you know, how do we think about or conceptualise Asia as a site of climate change, uh, particularly thinking about the effects uh, of climate change in the in the sort of the shorter term over the next decade uh, is the first aim of today's session. And the second is really that the question of resilience that's in the title. Uh, so what are uh, governments, what are uh, other non-government organisations doing uh, in order to manage uh, or to, uh, to increase climate change resilience uh, across the Asian region. And I will also, towards the end, be uh, asking questions about whether resilience is the right way of, of framing it or whether there are other ways of thinking about um, how to mitigate, how to prevent uh, and how to negotiate uh, the, the challenges that we are anticipating in this domain. So uh, I'm really delighted to be able to welcome our expert panel uh, this evening. First, I would like to introduce Ambika Vishwanath, who is the co-founder and director of Kubernine Initiative. We are very lucky to have Ambika with us in Melbourne uh, today. You've been at the uh, the Australia-India uh, Leadership Dialogue this week that was held uh, in Melbourne. So thank you for joining us for this event while you are here. Uh, I would also like to welcome Professor Lauren Rickards, who is the Director of Latrobe uh, Climate Change Adaptation Lab at Latrobe University. Uh, this is a, a relatively recent initiative, the lab in Latrobe University, and I think that it's really significant uh, that we have a research 
uh, hub like this that is dedicated uh, not just to understanding the effects of climate change, but what to do about it and, and conducting the kind of interdisciplinary research that is required to grapple uh, with these significant challenges. So welcome, Lauren. It's great to have you here. Uh, and last but certainly not at all least is Dr. Ruth Gamble, who is a senior lecturer and a DECRA fellow. So that is the, um, the early career ARC early career research fellow, uh, in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Uh, Ruth's expertise, uh, is, uh, environmental and climate change history, particularly focused on the Himalaya. You've been doing a lot of travel this year, so I really can't wait to hear about your insights from the travel that you've been doing, uh, particularly on this issue of uh, climate change, its effects and how we, you know, what we can do to, to deal with those effects. So we will have time for questions in the last 15 minutes or so, uh, but I am going to direct my first question to you, Ambika. Um, uh, and that is really about one of the things that I just raised was the fact that Asia's, of course, not the only region to face climate change issues. So are there specific sets of issues that Asia faces as a region when it comes to climate change? Uh, is it different or unique in particular ways? And are the effects of climate really go, or climate change really, are they going to be felt differently across this vast region? Thank you. Thank you, Beck. It's great to be here. And I'm glad that um, the AILD event coincided with us being able to do this um, together. And also it's really great to be here with both uh, Ruth and Lauren, whom I've known uh, for I mean I've known Ruth for like years I think <laughs> I've been a big fan for years uh but this is the first time we are meeting in real in person so this is very exciting uh and and Lauren very nice to to meet you um so to your question I mean simply put uh I don't think we can say that the effects of climate the changes in the climate that we're seeing is unique to any one region in the world you have the same kind of heat wave that we've seen this year uh, in parts of South Asia, you've seen it in parts of Southeast Asia, but it's also been in parts of Africa, Central and Southern Africa, and also in uh, Western Europe and in Canada. It's the exact same kind of heat wave. Uh, and these are very different contexts in terms of their the country's development economy. Um, you've seen floods, that have and the devastating floods that we saw in Pakistan and Afghanistan last year. Uh, there were floods in parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, you saw floods in Brazil. And the way the climate is changing now, it is quite likely that in, in early uh, or spring of uh, next year, you will see similar kinds of floods in parts of Australia as well. Right. So I think that if you look at it from a regional perspective, we are a little bit doing a disservice as to how we think about the changes in the climate. If we think about it from an issue perspective, then it is probably easier to understand that issue and then understand the effects of that, which is really, I think, the crux of your question, right? Um, now, heat in Canada and in the UK and in India will be felt very differently 
because of the number of people it's affecting. So that is an important way of how we approach it, uh, how it affects livelihood, how it affects your health, how it affects potential economic development, how it affects women. Um, all of these are important. So, so if we think of it less of a region or a country, but more from that issue side of it. So the flooding, then how is it affecting your coastal communities all across the Asia Pacific region that are very heavily dependent on the oceans for their livelihood is very different from how flooding is, is the, the risks and the effects of that are seen in Central and Eastern Europe, for example. And not to say that the floods there were not devastating. Um, I saw firsthand some of the the in the aftermath of that what has happened. They were they're terribly ill-equipped for it. Um, but the number of people that are going to lose a livelihood is very different in terms of scale. Yeah. What are the long-term then risks of that is how we have to consider um, things in both Asia, especially in parts of Asia that are developing or less developed economies, as opposed to what might happen in you know South Korea, Japan, or even parts of Australia, uh, because the ability to withstand that is greater. As the director of, of the lab, I mean, one of the things that I find um, quite inspiring about the work that you do is um, just grappling with the sheer complexity of the, the topic um, because, uh, you know, the way that, that I look at it, I think that's just a really seems like a very difficult and massive task um, that you and your team of researchers are, are really grappling with. Um, so, I mean, my question to you is, um, how do we even wrap our head around the changes that might be required to uh, to mitigate uh, or to, to adapt uh, to climate change? I mean, can we grasp, are there like fundamental principles or fundamental issues that we can kind of um, start with in order to try and reduce the overwhelming sense of complexity that comes with studying this particular set of issues. Thanks, Beck. And uh, yes, you've just summed up how we, we feel quite frequently. <laughs> it is complex and overwhelming. And uh, when I used to teach a course on this, you know, it was unfortunate for the students that you do have to actually understand everything about society to actually understand climate change impacts and adaptations. So, um, but, yeah, look, there are now, I think, a really well-established set of principles. And, you know, I know through the work I've done with the IPCC, for example, that having a, a, a sort of shared framework is a way to bring together thousands of researchers from across different contexts and disciplines to actually have a conversation about that. So it has been really important and it's really, I think, underpinned a lot of the progress, the, the positive progress that we're seeing. But... I mean, just if I can share just a few, noting that, you know, this is a good year-long topic. <laughs> um, you know, one of the first things is that um, climate change, as we know from a historical perspective, is unprecedented. So we're talking about different changes. So while a lot of the changes in terms of the climatic conditions um, in a kind of qualitative sense um, can seem similar. So people say, oh, we've always had drought, we've always had floods. You know, we're talking about different types of floods, different types of droughts. And part of that is because of the context of the intersecting hazards. So they talk about compound hazards now. So it's, yeah, you might have had a drought, but have you had it, you know, on, you know, followed by the flood, followed by the fire, followed by the second flood, etc. So 
different contexts, different. At the same time, no one sort of sits and experiences climate change directly in their context. It's always experienced via life. It's always experienced via existing trends and issues and all of the sort of systems that we have in place. And so that's why our lab is focused on work because we feel like that's a really useful lens through which to understand how climate change is being experienced and also the challenge that climate change is posing to our ability to respond. So it's always, you know, they talk about a, a threat multiplier and a risk multiplier. It takes existing things such as a COVID situation dealing with that and it twists it and then adds to that so people go oh you know climate change versus covid you know what's most important that's not the right question the question is how are the two things interacting um one of the really crucial things picking up what um ambika was saying is that another of the complexities is that you do have because it is you know literally a global phenomenon you do have um similarities as well as uh, intersections between the sorts of climatic changes that different areas are experiencing, but you also have that place-based element that each place, and I mean that in a temporal sense as well, you know, it's day by day, almost hour by hour. You seem to be well-placed now, but, you know, in two hours' time you're less well-placed because your electricity system's gone out, for example. We seem to be doing well so far here. Uh, so, so, you know, it really requires a continual um, assessment of how a given situation is. So you need those place-based approaches. But that's where the sort of positives start coming in because you think about all of the different elements of particular contexts that contribute to climate change risk. So they are things like the ways in which our urban planning processes and buildings actually contribute to the severity of hazard. So you've got heat as a kind of climatic phenomenon, a weather phenomenon, but then you've got the heat experienced because of the actual neighbourhood that someone's in, you know, and the, the amount of concrete and asphalt that's around them. So you've got very different, you know, neighbourhood building level effects. So you've got social effects there. You've got social effects in terms of exposure, and that's, again, both a temporal and a spatial thing where people are located, including big, long-term social processes there that lead to things like environmental injustice and then you've got all the the rest the non-climatic vulnerabilities that are being twisted and, and amplified and that just gives you such a wide array of things and to 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 pull on so many levers there to reduce climate risk you can reduce non-climatic vulnerabilities you know reducing gender inequality reducing Social inequalities, reducing um, environmental unsustainability, these things all mean that we're better placed to cope with the additional pressure of climate change. So there's a big whack of adaptation there. Then you've got your more sort of classically climate risk reduction measures, which are more focused on exposure and hazard reduction, and they're super important too, but also multiple. You know, so there's so many things we can do, which is you know adds to the complexity, but also... Um, does mean that it's it's can be a really it seems a bit weird but joyful kind of area to work in because it's all about bringing together and activating a whole lot of positive actions. Thank you. And the focus on work, I mean, that is a really interesting way of of getting 
into I think the the the, the topic and Ambika, you mentioned uh, livelihoods, and I think you know that is one of the things that um, that that a lot of Asian societies are facing, uh, particularly low lying um, Asia Pacific, I should say, uh, low lying communities, the reliance on uh, things like fishing, on ocean resources, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, that's about work a- as well. But um, Ruth, I wanted to turn to you as an environmental and climate historian. I mean, one of the things, and actually I should say, Lauren, before I move on, I find that quite optimistic. So that, thank you. <laughs> like, I'm like, yes, there are lots of levers that we can use. So that's, um, that, that is, uh, <laughs> I think, a useful thing to, to add into the conversation. But just on that, I mean, uh, Ruth, you know, the, the question that I have for you is about time horizons because sometimes, and maybe I'm just not engaged in, you know, the right conversations, but sometimes I feel like it's still as if climate change is something that is going to happen out there in the future rather than something that's happening right now and affecting communities right now in Australia, across Asia, but also globally. So I was hoping that you could tell us as a historian, why does the past matter for our understanding of climate and climate change um, in Asia? I mean, you're, you're... research focuses on the Himalaya and South Asia, but what what kind of lens does history bring in order for us to think about um, the changes required for, for dealing with this issue? Yeah, I've been thinking about this the last few days because I, um, I was thinking about how in history it's kind of simple. You can see it. It's really, if you look at longer scales, it's this like perfect narrative that happens. You get um, the two, like there's this idea of enclosure. And so people come in and they say, um, this land and water has become a resource and I'm going to extract it. Or they say, this land is now part of India or China or Bhutan and we're going to enclose it and we're going to um, stop the water flowing and, and use the resources from it, right? So you get these processes of enclosure that lead to um accumulation that leads to capitalism that leads to more extraction and then we're stuffed yeah and then um basically over about three or four hundred years it's it's so like as a historian it's really simple like you can it's not hard to to follow the lines right the trick is then that you want to go oh so to undo it we have to undo all of the systems that we have in place at the moment yeah, like we have like these major national international order um, with te- everything's territorialized, and we've got all of these nation states that have um, hydraulic, like electrical and water uh, regimes that they need to sustain. And then we also have an international uh, capitalist economy that's taking things from somewhere and putting them somewhere else, like turning them into shoes or whatever, or selling Himalayan rock salt, which you really don't need. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's from slave labour. Anyway, um, <laughs> or indentured labour. Um, so there's, so there's, this, I, there's this longer process that's happening that we can see easily. But actually, and I kept thinking about it, we can't get people to talk about, like, a uh, carbon tax, you know. So undoing 300 years of... Um, of uh, capitalism and colonialism that's led to dodgy development programs and so on is even harder. So you're kind of working with two different things. Like you have an idea of what's happened and you know the solution, but you know the solution's kind of impractical, so then it's not a solution, so then you kind of have to 
patchwork things together um, and do what you can. And I was thinking, I'm actually like, think genetically optimistic. So I, but I don't tend to feel as optimistic as Lauren. <laughs> where, where I, like, usually I'm like, oh yeah, it'll be okay. And I go, oh yeah, there's like, but there's, but I keep seeing disasters multiplying where I'm working and I don't um, see anyone really um, fixing it. And, and I keep thinking that, that, that what I've noticed is that the more governance that there is, the worse things get. Um, and so then if government's not the answer, then what is? Um, so um, uh, I don't know what to do. I think lots of little things. Maybe there's not one big answer. Maybe the story, the narrative was like a big narrative that goes, this happened, then this happened, and now we're in trouble. Um, but uh, actually how you undo that, I don't think can be a big narrative. I think it has to be lots of little narratives. Well, thank you. Um, and Ruth, I, I'm well aware of your scepticism of some of the key tenets of our discipline of international relations, being states and governments and international order and territory and enclosure and all of the things that you mentioned. So, Abigail, this is where I bring you in because I'm an IR person. <laughs> well, okay, I'm the IR person here. But your organisation, Kubernetes Initiative, does deal with security, the concept of security. What does security mean? Who do we think about when we think about security? Because, you know, I think part of the work that we sort of do together is this idea that security is not just about defence or militaries or governments. Um, so what are, I mean, what are the sort of intersections between what we might call traditional military security challenges and climate change in Asia? I mean, it does seem that climate change presents its own um, compound hazards, threat multipliers, all of these things that affect the security of people. But climate change also presents a big problem for your conventional military um, mechanisms. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, in moments like this, I'm like, I'm a water person. I'm not a security person at all. <laughs> um, it's nice that I can wear, wear these two hats and, and remove one when I need to. But I, the answer to your question actually lies a little bit in both what Lauren and, and Ruth said about one um, we have to solve for a number of small things, which is, I think, what you were alluding to as well, right? To say that we undo these structures, I think you're right, it's 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 not realistic. Uh, we are too entrenched. But if we can understand where to solve for the little the little bits, then it's probably going to be more effective. Um and in that, if we solve for any kind of inequality or inequity, right, uh, we will, I think, find the answer. So you you fix your gender inequality and gender inequity, whether it is in a regular situation or in a defense situation, right? Um, you fix for things like uh, uh, supply of uh, any kinds of goods and services um, within the structure that exists. You don't change the entire structure, but you change one, one vertical of it. Can we have better, more equitable access to resources globally? Then that heat wave, that Canada feels differently and India feels differently. India will be able to deal with it in a much more uh, holistic fashion, right? So we have to think about it in that sense. So I'm sort of trying to marry both of uh, what uh, uh, they had said earlier is that we have to look at it from those perspectives. And in that sense, also then to come to your question about 
a very more traditional hardcore security if we think of it from military and defense perspective now there are governments around the world that have understood uh, not many uh, probably less than both my, all my fingers uh, both my hands all my fingers um about this interplay between the changes in climate and their long term military goals uh and there is something to learn from their strategies you know for example the us has one the 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 the, the dutch have it the french have it uh the australians have uh, some aspects of it uh, it's not a full fledged strategy like the like the french or the us but there are some aspects of it uh, uh india does not have a strategy but india does have it in bits and pieces so for example the navy has a strategy of looking at green bases uh to understand how their naval bases might be affected by water insecurity and heat and rising sea level right all of these are aspects of climate but if we were to say you know solve for climate in military uh, all of those like old guys who are sitting uh, no matter what color they are they are almost always all old they are sitting at that table they'll be like no it is fine we have been doing this for so many decades they are not thinking so if you have to if you break it down and say actually your base that is in the middle of the ocean somewhere is going to face a rising sea level the heat is going to affect your uh, equipment and i'm not talking big equipment i'm talking equipment like gloves right what are you going to do then then they start thinking about it uh, your water that is not uh, uh clean is not you're not going to be able to clean all your big equipment the the big toys that they like then they start thinking about it, right so we break it down then they start thinking about how to solve for climate change as well right so i think if we bring it to what you were saying it's those little bits then that structure changing that structure makes it a bit easier i i i would think yeah yeah I got a question for you. Um I can't tell you how many I I was trying to think on my hand how many times I have driven past. I think four or five. It's, it's a bit dark, sorry. Um I I have driven past army trucks that have been destroyed in avalanches. I just mm -hmm. saw images I don't know how many died in Sikkim. It was like five or six. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that got All wiped out. Numbers, yeah. yeah, that got wiped out yeah. by a glacial lake outburst flood 2 weeks ago or 3 weeks ago. does that change their mind so you know how the you, the the change over there is oh let's build more roads oh <laughs> obviously that's not the solution yeah, yeah. uh but there is some change in thinking as to now don't build a road is not practical because there is then the harder question of defense and you know i have a hostile neighborhood and all of that so the question then is where do you build a road that is smart for you in the long term and saves all your lives of your uh, uh, army personnel and your equipment because ultimately that's going to cost you on a bottom line and if you put a dollar figure to it the chances are they are paying a little bit more attention yeah, yeah. and lauren i'd like to bring you in here i mean we've had this sort of uh, conversation about smaller 
like lots of smaller things rather than necessarily trying to undo these massive structures, whether they're political or social or economic. Um, So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, uh, but also to ask you what efforts uh, you see as being or already being made in relation to climate change resilience adaptation across the region uh, and whether there are particular areas that you see as suffering from neglect. Thanks, Beck. Yeah, well, one of the kind of, I guess, consequences of addressing climate change through our existing systems is that our climate change responses look very familiar. <laughs> they, you know, which is just, you know, the natural kind of, so take, for example, the fact that, you know, the UN is the major kind of international body leading the charge on this, United Nations. So what do most adaptation efforts look like at the moment? They look like nation by nation container type approaches. And so you've got inherent nationalism built into that, which is problematic, you know, both in terms of the kind of false borders that they uh, impose, but as well as the kind of um, interests that that uh, and the attitude. Uh, We've recognised that one of the risks we face is that our workers are exposed, often outdoor workers are exposed to heat stress. Uh, We're very concerned about this. So we're replacing them with robots as soon as possible to protect our shares. So you can start to see the sort of thinking, right? So, you know, <laughs> obviously social implications for, for those workers. And actually, you know, just as an aside, the whole just transition conversation is yet to really take off in that adaptation space, but very much needs to. Um, secondly, besides the sort of container type effect, we also have other ways in which the existing approach tends naturally enough to be a very conservative one. So again because of the kind of governance mechanisms and pro, you know management mechanisms through which we're approaching this it's things like well how do i break this down into you know um, annual reports how do i break it down into normal planning cycles what can i say i'm doing and what you can say you're doing actually then becomes quite constrained so the, the you know the the kind of reliance you know we always talk about the election cycles but it's equally so in organisations all of those normal cycles they really don't support the kind of long term approaches we take and if we do have long term approaches they sort of tend to sort of chuck a goal out there so yeah 2030 2050 we'll do it yeah I'll be gone I'll be gone so so that. Yeah, they'll be gone. Yeah, so there's sort of um, there is the big gap is in ambition. It's really in what's um, called transformational adaptation, and the IPCC defines transformational adaptation in terms of the scale of action. So that's both in terms of like the ambition, but also the kind of reach of it, the scope of action. So rather than saying, okay, we'll deal with heat stress on workers and we'll deal with um, that particular supply chain risk and we'll deal with that over there, actually having a much more systemic approach and the speed of action. So they um, just ahead of COP28, the Adaptation Gap Report 2023 is being released and, as the name suggests, it indicates a big gap and, unfortunately, the trend opposite to what we should be seeing is that that gap is increasing. So the gap between impacts and um, adaptation action is increasing. And sorry, I'm talking too long, but just one final thing I think is really useful to know is that 
the more we're impacted today because we're not adapted, the more vulnerable we are to future impacts tomorrow. And you just know that inherently, right? If you're coping with stuff, a whole lot of stuff that might have a very small climate signal but nevertheless coping with more and more stuff, cost of living, and let's not pretend that the cost of living is divorced from the you know, widespread climate change impact on economies. You know, if you're dealing with that, then you're less and less able to do the very, very hard work of doing that long-term planning and implementing it. And so I'm, you know, call me optimistic before, which is I hope my team noted that because I'm not a term often referred (laughs) to. I actually would, yeah, just refine it to be realism plus hope. But but anyway, um, but, you know, the thing that really, really concerns me is that, that our capacity to adapt is eroding, that window of opportunity to act is eroding and closing. Uh, because we're allowing too many impacts to hit us now. And that now is the eternal present, right? We're, no one's going to blow a whistle and say adaptation has to start now. So that's why events such as this are so important. <laughs> Realism with hope. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> that sounds like a good way of, of putting it. But, again, I think we come back to the time horizons sort of issue that um, that that point that that you make about you know everything that we don't do now is going to make us more vulnerable in the future. Uh, but we have a couple of water experts. I'm sorry to have uh, lumped you in with the international relations crew. It's just that you do international relations so well. Uh, <laughs> but I actually I'll start with Ruth because your your um, expertise is really on rivers, uh, and so rivers we know are crucial to the things that we've just been talking about livelihoods um sustainability people's lives food security all of these sorts of issues so what are we seeing in terms of river health in asia efforts to mitigate and adapt in particular geographic air uh, regions that you've looked at um and you know what are you know, I hate to draw it back to the kind of security issue, but there seems like, you know, water scarcity uh, could potentially lead to conflict, if not between nation states. And we can go back to the kind of arbitrarily politically constructed um, borders that that we've sort of been talking about, uh, but also between communities more generally. Yes. Okay. I want to no, no no it is but I've got like a I was I wanted to start with a schematic right like I have this idea in my head of Asia which is probably not what IR does and it, and it, um and it has at like the top this uh, third pole with lots of glaciers and ice on it um and then you have a um uh, rivers that run down from that and they don't just take water they also take silt and create river plains and on those river plains we have the largest concentration of humans on the planet which is also a big thing about Asia that we need to remember and then those and then that silt and water runs out into the sea and fertilizes the ocean yeah so we get fish and stuff and then the sun heats it up drags the water back up and dumps it back up onto the mountains and it starts again and again monsoon in monsoon out monsoon in monsoon out connecting the mountains to the plains to the oceans and back again right big schematic like that and it works south asia southeast asia east asia not north asia because they're just dry but the rest of them it's like monsoon in monsoon out 
the three different the two, three different um, parts of the of the uh, continent where most people live, right? So you get this big system happening there, and th- and and then um, in terms of a. Uh, uh, how rivers work in that in that cycle. Um, what you get is uh, it's 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 affecting it at the top, it's affecting it in the middle, and it's affecting it at the bottom. So it's um, complicated on all levels. At the top, what we've got melting glaciers and melting permafrost, which intensifies systems, makes it rain instead of snow. So then you get more landslides and more um, avalanches and uh, glacial lake outburst floods and this thing that they call a cloud lake outburst flood, which is basically you have a superstorm that just dumps a lake, the equivalent of a lake, on a place. And we have also things called sky rivers or atmospheric rivers that have um, climate systems with more water in them than the Amazon running through the sky above Asia and dumping the water on the mountains and flowing down as well, right? So these big water events all over the place. Um, and then down on the plains, you have massive water extraction because um, because colonisation led to everywhere being depleted and there wasn't enough food so they amped up the food production during the green revolution two crops a year to be able to feed india and china and no water and the water table goes down 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 and then you have to burn everything and then you get pollution going up 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 right and then we have the seas <laughs> and we have like the um you have the the uh the uh large uh, um cities right on the edge of the ocean um that are being affected by rising sea levels and increasing storms Storms. Um, so there's, I mean, there's, I, I, I kind of agree that climate change is happening everywhere, but I think it's really important to keep the context of what's happening in Asia, um, remembering that it's not this, it's in Asia, climate change is something the West did to them. Yeah, it's like not something that's happening in the future, it's happening now, and it's not their problem, it's our problem, and we're not fixing it. Does that all make sense? <laughs> That was a masterclass in, I guess, environmental strategic thinking schema in Asia. And, I mean, Asia is maritime. So I would like to get your thoughts. Just if I can add to that, right, um, if we solve for the water problem, we will not have a climate crisis in the future. It's really very simple. We are trying to solve for the climate crisis that we created, you know, decades past. And I will say we, I, I sure there are, there is historical context to that. But I think uh, if we continue to go around that vein of that historical context, we're a little bit letting people like certain countries off the hook that are doing it now. And I am not okay for, I am not for that. Um, uh, so, so yes, but if we are still trying to solve for this climate problem right it's a weather it's ultimately it's a changing weather pattern that has as lauren said cascading effects if we stop thinking of it from that perspective i mean not stop thinking about it but actually think about it from that bottom up perspective solve for as ruth is saying the water Uh, how we use it how we think about it how we value it where it is going what are we doing with it and on parallel, and you know this is because of the work I do, if we solve for the gender question, I think we will then probably be all as optimistic as Lauren is. 
right? Um, because that is where our real solutions are going to come from. Um, and as and that and that is where I speak more as a water person. And she's absolutely right. We have this system. We have not. We are not thinking about it. Why are we not thinking about it? Because the people who are talking about climate change have no understanding of so. Okay, not all the people. Most of them. Some of them have an understanding, but a lot of them don't realize that this is a water issue, and it's a number of things related to that. It was only till last, not till last year, that the climate, the uh, the COP did not ever have a discussion about water and its relationship to climate. Can you imagine in all this 28 years of COP, there has never been a discussion about water. Now this year, again, they're having one panel. How does this make sense? Right? Uh, the pollution, the heat, all of that relates back to water. And all of that relates back to what Ruth is talking about. Sorry, that didn't, I don't think answered your question at all, but I wanted to add that. <laughs> That's fine. I'm like, you don't have to answer my questions as long as you are giving us your ideas. And I am sorry that Lauren got tagged with the optimistic. Uh, that was my fault. I was apparently born on the day of buoyant optimism. So that was by no means uh, a derogatory comment for me. But um, can I, we will have a bit of time for Q&A. But before we go into that, so for those online, please put your questions in the Q&A box. Uh, but before we get into that, I would just like to briefly ask um, Lauren and Ruth, the term resilience, uh, I is this the right framing? Because when I tend to hear about the term resilience in, in sort of the con context that I'm more familiar with, um, particularly in sort of development context, I tend to feel like it's just that we're not coping better. Um, so I wonder whether uh, you think that is the right way of framing or, or um, whether there's better ways of doing that. So, Lauren, I might start with you and then Ruth. Thank you. Well, look, there's, there's many, many definitions and meanings of resilience, so let's get that straight. And I think um, there's real strengths and weaknesses to it as an approach. Um, so to start with the strengths, you know, resilience thinking, which is a kind of phrase, resilience thinking is based in systems thinking, which is exactly the sort of approach we need. So it allows us to think about social ecological systems, the fact that, you know, right here, right now, you know, we are interacting through this building and it's our foundations with water catchments that we're part of the, you know, river used to run this down past us here. So there's a whole sort of um, approach there that's very important. Same with socio-technical systems. We talked about cascading impacts. The only way to actually identify, map, understand cascading impacts across infrastructural systems and services is through systems thinking. And there's a lot of great work in resilience to try to, uh, uh, you know, intervene and to try to disrupt those disruptions, if you like. And in that, you know, I think, you know, in engineering and a lot of the areas of science, logistics, there's a lot of really useful tools and measures. I like my buildings to be resilient. <laughs> I like my road systems to be resilient. So, you know, and they talk there about the difference between absorptive capacity, so which is about the ability to actually not be too disrupted by something in the first place, restorative capacity, so how quickly can you get back to normal functioning, and then adaptive capacity. And so to me, resilience is 
nested within that broader question of adaptive capacity and adaptation. It's not something, it's not, I, I don't see it as something we can not be without, you know, we, we, we can't be without it. At the same time, um, we have to acknowledge that resilience in the way it's used um, and applied does come with serious caveats. And again, it comes back to the, the conservatism. So one is the idea that, as you said, um, resilience is kind of enough. And so sometimes it's really referred to as simply a re return to normal functioning. Now, if you're already struggling uh, and you're coping with a whole lot of things, the idea of returning to that, you know, is actually inadequate and it's certainly not going to place you to cope with greater and greater risk loads going forward. So it's inadequate in that sense, which is why it has to be paired with adaptation. At the same time, it's often used as a normative idea. So you have resilience task force, you know, we have a resilience agency, our Department of Homeland Affairs is doing a whole lot of stuff on resilience frameworks, which doesn't specify the crucial point that resilience of some things is actually highly unhelpful. We have a lot of resilient structures of stuff that needs to change, resilience of things that are barriers to change. So, you know, capitalist system, highly resilient. You know, there's a whole lot of things that um, we need to actually change but, you know, are, are considered resilient. And goes back to that kind of, kind of self-centred approach I mentioned earlier. You know, we might have really well-adapted resilient corporations that through their outputs, through their outcomes, are actually worsening outcomes for a range of you know, groups in society, including non-humans. So you've got a whole kind of issue there with the kind of conservatism of it. Um, so my point about resilience is, yeah, you've got to sort of put it in context and use it carefully, but it's not something that you can kind of just dismiss I know for some social scientists, people have a kind of allergic reaction to it, uh, and I understand that. But, you know, for me to function every day and get up, <laughs> I need to be resilient. So I'm kind of happy to have it as part of my life. Um, yeah, interesting. I, I think uh, I pretty much agree with everything that Lauren said. I've, I've been thinking about systems too much lately which says something about my life. Um, and there's, uh, I'm, I'm really struck by how naturalised and how um, straightforward systems seem to uh, the way we think and how they're not part necessarily of the ways of thinking of the Indigenous and local people that I'm working with in the mountains, for whom it's much more about relationships than systems. So it's the relationship to the environment. It's not so much how is that system working as in the the god that's inhabiting the mountain um, is 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 cranky because we did this and this. So you have like a much more intimate relationship with that place rather than thinking that you're both operating in a system. Does that make sense? And lots of people from those communities are able to keep the two different ways of thinking like live in two worlds and keep the relational and the systemic happening. Um, but I think we need to be cognizant that systems thinking is not the only way to think, right? Um, so that's, uh, the, yeah, and that there's something about the kind of uh, like block and chain and this is the system and this is how it works um, that means that we lose relationships 
uh, and uh, um, the yeah. So uh, I'm, I think systems are good. <laughs> and I like getting up in the morning too. Um, uh, but I was just like um, being cognizant of the fact that this is not the only way to think, I think is really important. And that gets me to the next thing where there's um, there's a lot of systems uh, that are working destructively in Asia on the environment. And they're not just um, the uh, like na- nation state system, <laughs> um, but also caste system, class system, gender gender um, hierarchies. Um, there's a lot of really resilient, destructive um, uh, systems that we need to kind of try and move out of. And my the thing I keep thinking is maybe the way to do that is to kind of sidestep and start thinking relationally instead and, um, and more kind of having a responsible, like it, there's one thing to be able to cope, but if you're actually focused on others, you tend to have a more um, more resilience, more happiness about you than if you're just focusing on your own resilience. And maybe if states did that as well and governments, we'd be in a better state too. Like it's more like dharma, I think, like responsibility and and um, and uh, having a, um, a, a things that you just have to do, right, as opposed to thinking, oh, how am I working in that system? Sorry. If I can just add as not as someone who doesn't work on on the resilience, I mean, that's I'm just a ordinary person in that sense, uh, coming at it. But I want to say if we think of it as climate resilience, we are constantly only going to be problem solving. Right. We need and then we are just like, okay, here's a problem. Let's like she said, cope with it. We are just only thinking what is the problem? Let's solve for it. What we have to do is think more future. How can we work towards the future of what is possible and what is better? So in that sense, I'm very optimistic, right? We have to think in that sense. The the way we think of climate resilience right now, if we are continuing to say resilience, it is only going to be problem solving. We're never going to actually have a situation or a time frame that is where everyone is like, oh, this is nice, right? Yeah, I think we need to get there, yeah. Problem solving and blame shifting. Yeah, that also. There's too much of that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry to the online people who might who might have missed that one, but um, certainly I think um in Indigenous perspectives on like First Nations foreign policy, that relational aspect seems to be um really important. Um, and so resilience is also about building genuine partnerships and resilient relationships whether it's between states or, or um, other forms of um, communities. Uh, so I would like to ask whether there's anybody in the room here who has a question. I see we've got one here and two here. Yep. If you could keep it brief, that would be great. First of all, thanks for a wonderful panel. I just wanted to ask about um, epidemics and health in the sense, you know, where does that sit in the you know, resilience against climate change and all of that, because a lot of, um, you know, older epidemics are returning and then there are new epidemics that are created by the, uh, you know, changing climates and everything. So 
you know, how do we place that? And does nation states and governments have a solution for that? Do they listen to that? I mean, also from a financial perspective, because uh, if it comes down to dollar, then, you know, epidemics and pandemics are going to cost a lot of money. So do the, uh, you know, government listen to that? Because we've just come out of a pandemic. Wouldn't that make them listen more? I mean, that's big. Yeah, that's a great question. I might take one more question and then take it back to our panel. Hi, thanks for the great panel. Um, unfortunately, this is more of an IR question, but um, in the past week or so, we've just seen an agreement between Australia and Tuvalu, which is effectively a lifeboat agreement. Um, does this mean that states or Australia is starting to think seriously about climate migration? And I guess are other states thinking about climate migration and that also means internal migration, not just not just between states. I, I I regret creating an atmosphere where the international relations people have to apologise, <laughs> but a, a, a fantastic question. Uh, and we also have um, some questions coming in through the Q and A, which I might sort of bundle in together. So if we've got um, you know a question about health and pandemics, and we've got a question about migration and responsibilities for um, displaced people, uh, there's also a question uh, coming through about um, corporate responsibility uh, and. And the issues to do with greenwashing. So is that an issue for, um, say, when we think about climate change adaptation, uh, corporates sort of being, uh, corp corporations being able to, I guess, evade responsibility uh, through these greenwashing strategies? Uh, and another question here about um, individual actions, micro actions. So, uh, you know, this is what, what, what can people do, I guess, to, to make things uh, better if we're thinking about the smaller things uh, that, that, that are required. So um, there's a lot to unpack there. So feel free to address whatever part that you wish. And I'll start with Lauren and then we can move it down the line. All right. Uh, well, let me start with the excellent um, uh, idea of th thinking of this through epidemics and pandemics. So, um, I mean, I guess the obvious point is that climate change is making them worse. Um, and I hope that's obvious just in the sense that you've got your physical drivers there in terms of vectors, in terms of um, conducive weather conditions, heat, you know, moving things uh, down different zones, for example, um, but also the impacts on those health systems and then individuals' uh, capacity to resist. So you've got the worsening of it. And then at the same time, you've got um, the fact that the pandemics and, and epidemics then worsen subsequent climate change impacts of all sorts so far beyond. What I would say is that some of the best climate change adaptation thinking that you'll see is in the public health response, and that's partly because they have their, I'm putting a plug for systems approaches that, <laughs> um, that think about social and environmental determinants of health. You've already got policy um, approaches such as the health in all policies approach, which is saying that health is determined by every policy in a government's portfolio, not just those labelled health. And the same can be said for climate change adaptation outcomes um, and systemic ideas like One Health, which is about looking at those intersections between human and animal health. So um, 
it is a really, really crucial thing because it is both the impacted and then a kind of um, further catalyst for further impact. So it's kind of at that um, nexus uh, and is a reason for cascading impacts. But I think some of the work going on there is some of the most impressive in terms of the kind of approaches we need. That doesn't address the difficult economics of it. Um, and I guess the final thing to say is that it really, epidemics really, um, I think, capture the really chronic nature of what we're dealing with here. You know, I, I kind of slightly, you know, I understand the need to talk about solutions and there's certainly some things we do want to have a neat final solution. So retract that phrase. Um, a neat, uh, complete solution to. Um but a lot of these things we're going to be managing as chronic conditions, um, and that's very much part of the climate change thing as well. Um, so I'll leave it there and just refresh my memory as to the other questions. Um, I was going to say, I'm not anti-systems. Oh, no. <laughs> I was just saying, yeah, yeah, it's like you have to keep the two things open. And I was going to say, I actually have a good story about health and, and particularly One Health. Um, so uh, kind of a good story, um, but it, it illustrates your point. Um, I had I have some friends that were running an anti-rabies campaign in Sikkim and managed to rid Sikkim of rabies until the dams and climate change dried the river and it came back in, right? But um, but then they did it again, <laughs> yeah? So there was this idea, but it was it was based on this idea of One Health, which I think is an actually genius um, idea that it's not, and particularly something that you would learn from being in um, India and also China um, that we can learn from as well, like you, we should have learnings coming this way, I think, um, is that, yeah, that um, living with animals, uh, making sure that your animals and your humans are healthy um, means uh, that you end up with more resilience in, in in those systems. I also would say I think from the kind of non-systems thinking about the relational thing, Health people tend to be focused on other people, so they tend to do good things for us from the start. Um, yeah, they tend to have like that that idea of being other focused seems to mean that they tend to be a head of the pack with um, adapting and and trying to change to um, uh, mitigate other issues. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll take the IR question <laughs> with the caveat that I have read a little bit about this new agreement, but I don't uh, uh, pretend to know anything about Australia to Walu's relationship at all, but to focus the answer on, on migration. Um, it seems to me that yes, Australia is starting to think about the relationship between climate and movement of people. Uh, I don't know if Australia per se understands that relationship yet. I think we will start the more research we have. I do not think any state right now actually understands that relationship because it's not so easy to be able to pinpoint the movement of people and communities to directly to a climate-related event. Now, in some cases, yes, it is possible if you had, you know, a, a dam burst or a, a flood and you saw a movement of people, that's usually internal. 
But to say that all migration is climate related, uh, it's a little bit, we, uh, the data, there is not enough research on that anywhere in the world, much less so in parts of Asia, right? A lot of it is also economically related, politically conflict. However, it is very heartening to see, and this is not just in Australia, but in several countries around Asia, that there is more money being put into that research uh, to understand where, what is this relationship? And then what is it that we understand from that? What can we do about it? I'll go back to my first answer. We solve for water, we'll solve for everything, right? Because a lot of this is also related to water, whether it is water in terms of a resource, using it, the the the, the excess of it or the lack of it. Um, but the fact that we are trying to understand this relationship, I think is is a very good first step. Not everybody is doing it because the bulk of that uh, uh, finance is going to only understanding the relationship between conflict and migration. And the bulk of that finance is coming from Europe, right? Because they are facing the they are facing it um in a in a different way than Asia is facing it. Asia wants to look at it differently. Uh, but Asia doesn't have the funds to be able to do it. So it's it's also then comes down to a question of that. I don't know if that directly answers your question, but I think it's sort of it's in a way that uh, is a good it's a good path. I would say um, on the question of individual action, I would say absolutely. I think individual action is incredibly important. We do we sometimes don't realize just how much our individual action actually has a very long term effect right and i will merge this question with the corporate greenwashing question to say that um i travel a lot on work uh it is inevitable i can travel less now because people have realized that uh you know flying me around the world for a one one day meeting is not necessary because we can do it over zoom our teams or whatever so thank god to all of those people who invented all of those platforms um <laughs> also it's really exhausting and it's terrible in terms of climate uh for the it's, it's terrible for the planet right it's also terrible for my own health um and but the people who do it you know we're all like oh it's okay i flew i took you know 30 flights in a month but I offset that with, uh, with you know, that little offsetting you pay $20 or 20 euros or whatever. And uh, you assume that that airline planted a tree somewhere, right? Have we asked where have they planted a tree? What kind of tree have they planted? We don't ask this question. That is a very important part of your individual action because a lot of airlines, and I won't name and shame over here, but a lot of airlines, including the ones that we fly between India and Australia, are planting the wrong kind of species in the wrong places. That's not helping anybody. So don't waste your $20 on that tree that that airline is telling you that they are planting to offset your carbon. But go ahead and plant that tree probably for much cheaper in your own backyard or somewhere else or whatever, pay for an education of a young girl, uh, do something like that, your $20, $25 will be much better spent, right? So that individual action is important and there's a lot that we can do, I think. Did, did you want final remark there? Just building on the, um, the question about corporations, I was just going to point out that one of the things that, a focus on climate change adaptation uh, really requires is to have a very, very strong understanding of different corporations' physical supply chains, 
So all of the actual locations in which they're literally changing local conditions through their operations. And if we actually trace the ways in which they are either contributing to local vulnerability or, let's be optimistic, local adaptive capacity, then you actually get a much, much stronger sense of their contribution to the climate change situation than abstracted uh, tables um, of different, um, you know, environmental variables. And so it's just that really important thing of actually looking exactly where different groups are, are actually operating. And I guess we're all not going to be eating Himalayan rock salt anymore <laughs> after this uh, conversation. Like no glacial melt. No, no glacial melt Excellent. water. Okay, we I, we need a policy brief on this in the future. Excellent water in Melbourne. <laughs> we don't need that kind of water. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sorry that we have taken you over time, but um, it's such such an interesting conversation, uh, and there's so much more that we we could talk about. And um, I feel like in 2024 we should have panels on migration and on the health and on some of the mapping of, um, you know, where, what corporations are doing and where. I mean, these are all really uh, interesting and important topics, but uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to call it uh, a night for now. Uh, and please follow us uh, on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events uh, and Latrobe Asia public uh, publications. But please um, join me in thanking our panellists. Uh, it has been a really rich conversation and I appreciate Appreciate you giving us the time to, to come and talk to us today. Thank you. And uh, please go and enjoy your weekend. Yeah. <laughs>